0: That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode.
1: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast you're listening to the archaeology podcast network you're listening to the archaeology show tas goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us welcome to the podcast
0: hello and welcome to the archaeology show episode 133
1: on today's show we talk about the real paleo diet a headless statue and a mummified
0: sheep let's dig a little deeper Welcome to the show, everyone. How are you enjoying this desert rain?
1: It's weird, but
0: different. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It's end of August, or sorry, beginning of August, end of July uh, last week, and we've had a lot of rain.
1: Yeah. So much more rain than we usually get. Enough yeah. so that we were like rained out in the field last week, which is so unusual.
0: Yeah. So we waited a few days to let it all dry out so we could finish the project. Yep. And then it rained again.
1: Yep. So who knows
0: what it's going to look like tomorrow? Well,
1: it does dry fast, so hopefully it's okay when we go out to finish tomorrow.
0: That's right. So we don't have Paul. He is currently on his way back to his home in the northeastern United States. And we are down here in Nevada still and getting ready to take off. But before that, we have some news articles for you. This first one's kind of a long one. And to be honest, I mean, it was written not too long ago, like a week ago. And I feel like just some of the stuff I've seen, even some of the stuff they've linked to. First off, the article is very comprehensive, and mm-hmm. it's like a meta study, and it it they talk about everything related to the paleo diet, and they reference a lot of peer reviewed primary sources. Yeah, they also reference themselves in some other articles they've written, and a lot of this stuff has come from, you know, stuff that's been written in the last like six months. Mm-hmm. So. Take that for what it is. Yeah,
1: Very, very thorough article, though, as far as, you know, these sorts of things go. So I was pretty impressed by that.
0: So this was written on Inverse.com, something I never really heard of Mm -hmm. in their science section. And it's called The Real Paleo Diet, Scientists Debunk Ancient Food Myths. Now, there's not really any debunking going on in the article. They're just talking about reality in ancient times, (laughs) quote.
1: Nah, that was an attention-grabbing title, I think.
0: (laughs) Totally. So anyway, well, a lot of people think the paleo diet is, you know, very few grains and things, lots of fats mm-hmm. and meat and stuff like that, because they say, well, if if it was good for people in the Paleolithic, they were always healthy and, you know, they made it through and they didn't have processed foods and sugars and, you know, unnatural sugars and, and stuff like that. You know, the reality is a little bit different. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, first off, we're going to talk about a bunch of things here but i think the thing people need to remember is people in paleolithic times also burned way more calories on a daily basis than we ever will.
1: Yeah, they needed super high calorie diets, high fat diets in order to get all the work done that they had to do mm-hmm. just to survive life. So yeah. it's very different what they were eating back then compared with our diets now for Indeed. sure.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of different sections to this article. They go all over the place. The first section talks about Basically ceramic baby bottles in the shapes of animals that were found in 1200 BCE to 450 BCE Bavarian graves, basically. Right. Uh, They found these, they're shaped like animals. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. The pictures are really cool.
1: Yeah. They're so cute. I mean, it's clearly done for the entertainment of the child who would have been drinking out of the bottle kind of like, you know, the airplane spoon, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: That's what it reminds me of.
0: Yeah. And a lot of times I'm a little skeptical when they make observations like that, they're like, well, it made us laugh. So it probably made children of the time laugh, um, you Mm -hmm. know, and and it amused them. And I'm like, You know, yeah, that actually probably is true in this case, because why would you go through the effort of shaping it like this thing, which could have been too easy, Mm -hmm. you know, shaping it like an animal, making it hollow, of course, to hold milk, and then, you know, using that milk to actually, I don't, they didn't have like a sucking mechanism, but I'm sure they would have drank out of it out of the end. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't
1: really have like a a nipple like bottles do today, but it said that some of them use the tail as the, the sippy end of it, Mm -hmm. basically. So... I don't know. It does seem likely that they made it for the entertainment of the child because what is your goal, right? Is to to get enough food into the body of your child that you're trying to nourish and grow. And if making them smile and laugh and more willingly drink, (laughs) drink whatever you're trying to give them, then that's what you got to do. So I get it.
0: So what does this show us about what they ate back then? Well, what it shows us is the milk that was found inside these things, the fatty residues of the milk, Mm -hmm. the lipids, if you will were from other animals. Yeah. Yeah. So moms were supplementing milk because I'm I'm willing to bet that you know, they didn't have a pump, like a breast pump. No, they so, wouldn't. So I mean, I guess you could squeeze the boob and get some milk out, but you wouldn't you, there's no way to store it and why would yeah. you do that if the baby can just go right to the boob? Yeah. So they must have used these almost exclusively, I would say, for
1: weaning uh, other probably. Milk yeah yeah i doubt they would have put breast milk in human breast milk human breast milk yeah that wouldn't have made sense to do that right so this is probably a way to help wean the child off the breast basically and still get a little bit of milk into them and the nourishment that you get from milk so that's probably what the goal was it was probably for older children too because like a really young infant's not going to be able to handle the the bottle Mm -hmm. like that and So I would guess it's for, you know, more toddler age kids that are, that are weaning. Right. Yeah.
0: yeah. Of course we don't know, you know, culturally when they would do that.
1: No, no. That's just a guess on my part from what I know about modern children, but it definitely, there's a lot of different things that we could assume or guess here. So, yeah.
0: What was that movie where the kid was like Uh four? (laughs) And and still
1: breastfeeding. And
0: the the one dad goes to the other dad. He's like, oh, how's your son? As he's like breastfeeding on the mom. He's like 48 months. I don't know who that was.
1: I think it was Vince Vaughn, but I don't remember which which movie it was. That was pretty funny. I feel like
0: if the kid can ask for the milk out of the boob, they're probably too old.
1: You are making some... I I mean,
0: that's just in our culture. I mean, Ah. that's a judgment that people would make.
1: I... There are very, very strong feelings about breastfeeding and breast milk and we don't have children. So I'm just going to end the conversation there because we're not interested in getting into an argument about what
0: and and how
1: people breastfeed
0: their children. And this isn't an argument. It's more of a discussion about, you know, back in the day, could children have breastfed until they were like eight or nine because food sources are scarce? No, they absolutely could have. Yeah,
1: they absolutely could
0: have. That's what I'm saying. It wouldn't have been like a weird thing because it's just a source of food and nutrition. Right. You know, so anyway, the cool thing about all this is You know, evidence of what people actually ate is a lot more difficult to come by than you would think. Yeah. Right. And a lot of times we see like bones and things in fire pits, but, and you make the assumption that they ate that stuff, Mm -hmm. but you don't have like direct evidence that they ate that stuff.
1: Yeah. And it often in the past hasn't really been considered super important either. Right. And that might be in part because we didn't have the technology to analyze the microscopic Mm -hmm. remnants in these bowls. So that might've been part of it, but also it just... Wasn't the focus of past archaeologists right. until somewhat more recently, I guess, like the last 30 years or so.
0: Yeah. Back in the day, they were more concerned with getting museum quality pieces mm-hmm. and taking the little shards and things that might have some good lipid analysis potential mm-hmm. and just tossing them or not collecting them or something like that. So and then the museum quality stuff just like went in the museum. Yeah. So
1: chances are it was like cleaned, too.
0: Oh, yeah. You know, like 100 years ago,
1: they would be cleaning these things before displaying them. So Mm -hmm. any residue that could be tested is probably long gone. But, you know, fragments of sherds could still potentially Mm -hmm. have things on them. So
0: yeah, Another point that the article uh, author makes is that also back in the early archaeologist times, people were more concerned about, you know, kings and probably queens and conquering warriors and, Mm -hmm. and people who were you know, I guess important, so to speak, to the time period, and and they were less concerned about the day-to-day. Yeah. And and mothers and women are just, you know, they are the day-to-day. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the, a lot of that stuff was overlooked, and they say right in the article that artifacts from food prep belong to those that lack societal power, which are typically women, servants, slaves, Yep, you know, people like that. So uh, there just hasn't been a lot of activity on that. Yeah. So...
1: It's good to to shine a spotlight on that because I don't think you can truly understand a society, a past society or culture, mm-hmm. unless you have the whole picture and you know what every member of that society was doing what yeah. they were, were responsible for and how it all fit together. It's a big puzzle and you can't just look at the edge pieces. You know, you got to have the middle bits too. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. So one thing that changed everything about uh, cooking for the early humans was Earthenware, pottery. Yes. And and part of that was because, well, they were now able to boil things, mm-hmm. make stews, you know, store stuff inside of it for long periods of time without, you know, bad things happening to it. You can't like store something inside of the crook of a tree branch or something <laughs> right. like that. Like it's going to go bad. Right. And residue analysis has really changed things, too, because... Organic residues, especially fats, cling to the little nooks and crannies of pottery fragments. Right, and they just kind of make their way in there. Especially if you're boiling it. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine some of the early ceramics were just like, you know, they started boiling it over the fire and it just like leaked out like a sieve, probably. They <laughs> yeah, they their, had to get the technique right, get the firing temperature <laughs>
1: correct, and all that to get a full yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, it notes in here because there's a lot of different segments talking about different things, but medieval people uh, and the medieval is a very specific kind of time frame. We were talking way earlier before that, but like medieval people, you know, maybe a thousand years ago, uh, give or take. We're making stews, cheeses, butters. I mean, that sounds pretty delicious. And it sounds yeah, like I would have been
1: not even bad. fatter
0: back then. <laughs> so
1: I don't know. You would have been working your ass off. That's so. true. See, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Like I spent most that. of
0: my day today. We're recording this. It's like six o'clock in the evening. We haven't had dinner yet. And yeah, I haven't eaten that much today, but I feel like. I've spent the entire day sitting. Yeah. Because I've been on calls, Mm -hmm. computer work, uh, and yeah, I went for a swim this morning. That's the only calories I burned. Yeah. Really. So.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's that's modern society right there. That's right.
0: Anyway, one of the things that helps make this all happen is the residue analysis, and the way that they do that. Not to get too deep into the weeds here, is they use two techniques. Well, the first one is called gas. Chromatography. And that's essentially, we're not going to get into what that exactly is, but essentially that's used to detangle, so to speak, the molecular structure of whatever they put in the grass chromatograph, I guess it would be. Mm-hmm. So, That helps to say, okay, so this is this, that's that, and then we can collect all these things. And then they take those molecules and they put them in a mass spectrometer. And mass really does mean mass, like Mm -hmm. weight. And, well, weight is different than mass, but mass, not like a lot, but mass as in, you know, weight. Mm -hmm. And molecules, different molecules are a way, have very defined weights and So when they take those molecules, they detangle them with the grass chromatography, and then they take the mass spectrometry or the mass spectrometer, and then they can tell what it is. Yeah. It's really cool. I mean, they can get down to the... You know, I think they're the one there's a lot of experimental archaeology here that we haven't talked about. Yeah. And they did a lot of really cool things like cooking and storing and all kinds of mm-hmm. stuff. And one of the ones that was interesting was um cabbage. They boiled cabbage. Yep. And the fats or whatever that in are in the, like
1: the like waxy coating on cabbage. Yeah, yeah. You know how it's like slightly waxy on the outside? Yeah. Yeah. Like that. they
0: were able to take that and say, Oh yeah, this is definitely cabbage. Yeah. Yeah. And when they found out what it was. Yep. That like yeah. waxy
1: coating was there and they were able to identify it, which is really neat. There's a lot of other stuff that they were able to identify much, yeah, with much more certainty than you would expect. It was pretty surprising, but really neat.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing that I thought was interesting too that I didn't know labs like this use a lot of milk proteins to do certain analytical techniques. Oh, they said that, uh, contamination is a real problem. And in fact, people have claimed evidence of dairy products before on sites, but it was actually contamination.
1: Oh. Yeah. yeah. So, Because
0: labs that in general do this mm-hmm. apparently use milk proteins for lots of different things. I don't mm-hmm. really know why. I don't know the chemistry behind that. Yeah,
1: I don't know exactly how it works. Yeah. But-,
0: but that was interesting. It just tells you that there's two two ways that you can really go wrong with these types of analyses, whether it's residue analysis or, you know, any other type of analysis where you're looking at something that's on the artifact. Mm-hmm. The first one is in the collection. Yeah. We've had to deal with this before, where if you know you're going to do some sort of analytical technique, if you find a certain type of thing, the minute you find that thing, you have to go into like almost clean room mode in the dirt. You can't touch it. You can't breathe on it. You really don't want anything, any air on it. Mm -hmm. You want to collect that in as pure of a way as possible. And the best way to do it is to collect all the dirt around it and then do it in a lab in a clean environment. But if you can't do that, you got to extract it in a way that you try not to contaminate whatever it is you're trying to find.
1: Yeah, you don't want to transfer like your lunch meat molecules onto the pottery and then have that pop up in a later study because nobody thought to tell people to put gloves on when they're collecting shirts or something like that.
0: Yeah, exactly. So anyway, the second place of course is the lab. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots of things that could contaminate a sample in the lab. So anyway, really good article, very thorough. Check some of the links out. There's some really good things that this actually links to. Uh, it was uh, impressive how thorough this was. You got to see the pictures of the
1: of the baby bottles, the they're weird so baby bottles. Cute. I don't even know what
0: they're supposed to be. They've got <laughs> two legs and like a weird head. I don't know if they're kind of bird or something or like what is this? They're but, weird
1: and cute. I love it. Yeah.
0: Anyway, yeah. that's really cool. So check it out and read the article. And if you got any questions, send them over, and maybe we'll talk about it on the next episode. So we go from weird bird shapes that kind of look like turkeys to actual turkey. In the next segment. (laughs)
1: <laughs> but like the country, not the animal, to be clear. To
0: be clear. Back in a minute. <laughs> Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send Send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code T-A-S.
1: Hey, podcast fans. I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com.
0: Welcome back to The Archaeology Show, episode 133, and this is segment two. And as I mentioned, we're in Turkey now, and they should have titled this article, is was titled Headless Statue of Ancient Woman Discovered in Turkey's Mother Goddess City, but what they should have titled was First Canceled Woman Discovered in Turkey. Oh, my
1: God. All <laughs> of
0: 2020.
1: Wow. The statue's
0: been toppled and its head's yeah. been taken off. The- this lady was canceled.
1: Yeah, possible. <laughs> The oh, the whole city might have been canceled, though, and like that was just a byproduct of it. And yeah. So,
0: First off, they say Turkey's mother goddess city. That's what the city is known as. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the actual Turkish name for this city is, but, I mean, they call it Metropolis, and I, that sounds like, isn't that where Superman, like, lives? Metropolis? <laughs>
1: it does sound like a superhero like, a
0: city. Superman or Batman or yeah. something else? Batman's Gotham City. Yeah. Superman, I'm pretty sure it's Metropolis. Yeah, so. that sounds right. Yeah. Well... I know. Anyway, the head's not anywhere to be found. Now, they did just find this, so maybe the head's there somewhere. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, but they they kind of slammed this thing out, and there's actually video of it in the article, which is pretty cool. Oh
1: my gosh, the video is so, so cool. And for any of you guys who aren't archaeologists, you should definitely go watch it, because I think there's a lot of mystery around how you excavate something like this, because... You know, sometimes on TV you see people just, like, hulking things out of the ground or Mm -hmm. whatever. That movie... What was the movie? The Sutton Who movie? Sutton Who movie. Yeah, Yeah, the Sutton Who movie that we watched did a pretty good job of showing how real excavation would go. But this is real archaeologists really excavating, and there's some jump cuts and stuff in there. They don't show the whole thing, but it's pretty true to form. Like, they even have some hammers and stuff in there because they Mm. had to get some big chunks of soil and rock and stuff out of the way. And, like, that's legit how it goes sometimes. So It was, it was really neat to watch that video and it's, it's a cool thing to watch if you haven't seen or experienced that kind of digging before.
0: Yeah. It looks like just judging from, you know, the pictures and stuff with people sitting next to the, or, you know, digging next to the statue that the statue is basically life size. Mm-hmm. So not huge, you know, probably about the size, probably a little bigger than the woman would have been, you know, more yeah. than likely. It's... Very well-preserved. It depicts a woman wearing flowing, draped clothing. And aside from the head missing, looks pretty good. Yeah. So.
1: If you watch to the end of the video, they show a, a photo of it standing upright. And oh, yeah. it's, it is really neat. And it's definitely some really, really artistic and really well-done stonework. And you and I have been to, like, the Museum of Pompeii. It's not mm-hmm. Pompeii.
0: Well, Naples. Yeah. Oh, was it in Naples?
1: Okay, yeah. yeah. The stonework, especially where you can see, like, the flowing a flowing garment on top of a body, Mm -hmm. it's just insane to Mm -hmm. see how well done that stuff is sometimes. And this one does look like it's pretty, pretty good craftsmanship.
0: Yeah. So the city itself is located 28 miles from the ancient port city of Ephesus, which we'll come into a little bit later here. Uh, That'll be important. But to date on this site, they've been digging there for quite some time. Uh, archaeologists found artifacts and structures from the classical Hellenistic, Roman, Byzantine, and Ottoman periods. And I'm going to talk about those a little bit later. But they also found... I thought this was really cool. I've literally never heard of something like this being found, <laughs> but I'm not like a Roman archaeologist. They found a wrestling hall. Like <laughs> yeah. How do you know that? Yeah. What about an indicated wrestling hall? The Romans liked to paint pictures of the thing say. that was happening on the wall because of the yeah. multi-languages that were there. Yeah. Maybe that's that was prob- That's
1: probably how. Yeah, that's neat.
0: But I don't know how you determine... Roman wrestling from, like, a brothel? <laughs> like, are those pictures very similar? <laughs> like, I don't really know.
1: <laughs> I, um, Well, there's probably two men, number one. Hey,
0: Romans were well, kind of like, yes, be with whoever you want. That's
1: true. <laughs> That's true, but I'm not sure that they painted pictures of being with whoever you want.
0: I mean, they kind of did. I remember when I was in the Navy, I don't think we saw this when we were in Pompeii, Uh but I never forget seeing one of the brothels. They love showing the Navy guys on tour of the brothels, of course, (laughs) but they showed us one and it was basically because Pompeii was such an international city where people from all around would come there. Uh, you can't expect to speak the language and they literally oh, had yeah. pictures of what you want to do. And there were pictures of women on women action, men yeah. on men action, yeah, you know, men and boys. I mean, they had pretty much whatever you wanted to have. You up just point at the picture. You just point at what you want. I want and they, that. They, it's like a menu. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, Metropolis was built in the third century B.C. when the region was under the control of the Seleucid, Seleucid Empire. I don't know how to pronounce that. The golden age of the city was during the Hellenistic period, and it was a religious power center during the Byzantine period. Now, there's something interesting about those periods we're going to get to in a minute. The statue suggests that it was made at a time when Rome controlled Anatolia, and Anatolia was the name of the part of Turkey that is on the Asian continent, because as a lot of people probably know, Turkey is one of those few cities, not Turkey, but Turkey, the country does, but Istanbul is one of those cities that straddles. Oh, Yeah. Two continents. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, it separates right there from the European continent and the Asian continent. Right. So anyway, Ephesus, as I mentioned before, the ancient port city was the capital of that region in 133 BC. So for Roman, the Roman Empire of that region, Ephesus was the capital. Mm-hmm. So, and that's important. So I don't know if this woman is going to end up being some kind of politician or if it's just a god I mean, a goddess. Well, that they we were don't recognize.
1: Yeah, they were saying that it's the Mother Goddess City, so it might be that this yeah. is a statue of the Mother Goddess. But
0: why toppled and headless? Because that doesn't sound very.
1: No, but it could have happened you know, by accident. We don't. Yeah. We can't assume that it was. It was angrily toppled.
0: <laughs> I think there's um, significant earthquakes in that area too. Yeah, times so
1: true, and yeah. uh, I didn't see, but. If if there was a time when the city was abandoned and there weren't people mm-hmm. living there or weren't a lot of people living there, yeah. that would have been a good point for a natural, something natural to happen that caused it to fall over and break. But right. then like, where's the head too? Right. Where did somebody carry it off? It is weird that the head is missing.
0: It's weird that the head... I mean, it might just not be found yet, like I said. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So, because this was very recent. This, what, this didn't come from a paper. This is literally like from the news. Yeah. 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 So... Anyway, that's about it from the article, but I did do uh, just a very surface research to give you some general dates on those periods that I mentioned earlier. Most of these overlap, but I thought it was interesting that, you know, they were represented. Now, it's possible that, you know, these different periods actually happened successively at this city, Mm -hmm. but the period itself more broadly overlaps quite a bit.
1: Right, right. Because those borders are constantly shrinking and expanding depending on what's going on militaristically speaking and all that.
0: Right. Yeah. Now the classical period, they say it goes from eighth century BC to sixth century AD. And this is classical Roman really, because right. Rome started around eighth century BC mm-hmm. and then the Roman empire was done around the fifth century AD. So I guess it went from classical to, you know, just basic good old fashioned Rome after that. I don't know. But, uh,
1: well, Rome basically fell after that point. It, it the wasn't Roman Empire did. the Roman Empire did it. Wasn't yeah. really a power after. Right. Oh, it wasn't a world power at that point.
0: But there's a Roman period which we'll talk about later. Oh, okay. So, anyway, the Hellenistic period. I didn't know this was so specific. Dates generally from 323 BC, the death of Alexander the Great, to 31 BC, Battle of Actium, and the emergence of the bigger Roman Empire. So oh. Rome was established eighth century. BC uh, okay. and the empire itself known. I mean, they were already starting to expand, but I think the battle of Actium is what made them an empire in their own right. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, from the sounds of it. Mm-hmm. I'm probably getting this all wrong. Uh,
1: <laughs> this is all very confusing know, right? and we are not classical archaeologists. No. So
0: The Roman period was from again, eighth century BC to about fifth century AD when, when the Roman empire essentially fell. Uh, and then the Byzantine empire was from about thirty three thirty, again, about the give or take the death of Alexander the great. To about the 1450s or so. Mm. And then the Ottoman Empire went from about that time period, 14th century, to the uh, 20th century. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like that one's continuing to go because we literally have an Ottoman right here. So oh. is that just like a throwback oh. or... Man, you don't give me anything. Oh. Man.
1: But <laughs> well, that one was like really bad though. I know. <laughs> yeah. that All that stuff with the dates is really confusing. I I don't understand... How the different time periods play together, so maybe that's some fodder for a future episode we can yeah pick apart the Roman
0: the whole episode about time periods yeah,
1: we'd like to, well the Roman one in particular because there's so many different yeah. layers to it, and yeah. they it was so big and so spread out that I'm sure there's a lot to a lot to go over there, so
0: all right, well, I think we're because of that Ottoman joke that I made, we need to end this segment. <laughs> We're going to go to segment three where I take up work in the salt mines, but it's not all that bad because I get to have some lamb chops back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun T-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea Public Store. Head over to arcpodnet.com shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. Welcome back to The Archaeology Show, episode 133, the third and final segment. And as promised, we're going to go to a salt mine, an Iranian salt mine, to be exact. I didn't know they were mining salt in Iran, but there you go. Iranian salt mine. So the cool thing about this is this site's been excavated since, well, I think before 1993. We'll get to that in a little bit. So there have been excavations here for a long time. And one of the things that was just recently found were the basically mummified sheep, 1600 year old mummified sheep mm-hmm. and they were naturally Nat- mummified. Yeah, I was going to say
1: naturally mummified yeah. in the salt mine.
0: Right. So one of the cool things about this and why this is a a, a paper, and for this one, by the way, they linked to the peer-reviewed study from the uh, Royal Society and we have that in the show notes. So you yeah. can take a look at that.
1: It was very, very...
0: It's very technical. Very technical. Yeah.
1: Read the abstract, but it's very technical.
0: The article does a really good job of distilling it, it down into the bullet points. Yeah, yeah it so definitely does. so it does a really good job with that. Yep. So, anyway, uh, they were able to pull DNA from this. And the cool thing about the DNA from these sheep was that ancient DNA, and this would be considered ancient for sure, is usually very fragmented and damaged. And mm-hmm. you can't, you, can, you just got to kind of like piece it together and, and you might not have all the pieces. Oh, and, are
1: you yeah. telling me Jurassic Park can't really happen?
0: I mean, no, see. Okay, so Jurassic <laughs> Park.
1: <laughs> oh, no. Remember, Here we go. Tangent.
0: <laughs> do you remember why Jurassic Park really happened? Because they said that. They bred only females, I think it was. There were no males, uh-huh. so you couldn't actually have them breeding in captivity. Right. But they used frog DNA to supplement some of the places where they were missing oh, DNA.
1: Oh, that's right. And I think
0: the, the connotation is they the, some of the dinosaurs were able to basically... Replicate an amphibious type behavior where the females were able to have like unfertilized eggs. Oh, that's
1: right. Yeah. So. All right. Well, that was you brought that. that up, I not did. Me. I did. I brought that on us all.
0: So anyway, uh, you're
1: welcome. So anyway, but we've got crazy oh, female
0: sheep that are breeding in by themselves in these weird labs. So uh-huh. I don't know what's going on.
1: Okay. Yeah. Can I go back to dinosaurs for like a quick yeah, second though? Ahead. Do you do you think I that don't there do
0: dinosaurs? An archaeologist. <laughs>
1: do you think that there might be? <laughs> A salt flat or a salt mine somewhere that has preserved a dinosaur that might have some intact DNA that we could extract and have Jurassic Park? Or is it just too old?
0: I mean, I don't know who was mining salt when the dinosaurs were alive. I
1: don't mean salt mine. I mean <laughs> natural salt deposit.
0: Well, possibly, but I think the problem with that is It's too old. No, no, no. It's it's that the mine itself is excavated. So things can like fall into it yeah and things can go into it and then become in the salty environment, whereas with them with salt not being mined sixty five plus million years ago the there's no way for like a dinosaur to like fall into that yeah, much salt. yeah that's true you know what i mean yeah. no it's not it's not saying that there aren't fragments of you know dinosaurs maybe that have been preserved, but I think even sixty five million years is asking quite a lot
1: it is asking and a that's lot. right
0: at the edge of yeah. dinosaurs right really you're talking like a hundred to two hundred million years so Anyway.
1: All right. Well, that's been our paleontological tangent for the day. Moving on. (laughs) There you go.
0: Anyway, the DNA here, because the salt helped to preserve it, uh, was in better condition with longer fragment fragment lengths and less damage. So we'll talk a little bit more about the sheep that they, they looked at in the DNA in a bit here. Again, the preservation was due to the salt mine, and the salt mine was called... Shaharabad or Shaharabad. I'm not really sure thinking how to pronounce Sheherabad. that. I Shaharabad. Shaharabad? I don't know.
1: I'm not sure either. Yeah.
0: Either way, it's in Iran. Mm-hmm. So the cool thing is, going back to what I mentioned earlier, 1993, six men dated from about 1,700 years ago, so prior to when the sheep fell in, mm-hmm. uh, were found and retained much of their original features. Yeah. It like, said aspects of their original features.
1: Yeah. I think hair and yeah. skin and stuff like that, which is... So, Creepy and amazing:
0: I know, and the way this works, basically is salt absorbs the water from the corpse, uh, preventing soft tissues from breaking down and decaying. and I think this a similar process happens with like bog bodies yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. It's just anything that can stop or prevent or slow down decay will preserve a body right I mean that's act, that's what mummification does, purposeful mummification. right They just take out all those soft things and put them in jars mm-hmm. and then you know salt them up probably. Uh, Anyway, the cool thing is they found that the sheep were genetically similar to modern sheep breeds, which genetics changes pretty quick, especially with domesticated animals. Yeah. And if the the genes were genetically similar to modern sheep breeds, that is almost unequivocal that there have been sheep in that area for at least 1600 years. Mm -hmm. And if they had, you know, sheep back then that were similar to the sheep now, you can just assume that it was probably well before that, that they had sheep as well. Right. So, yeah, that's pretty neat. Mm Mm-hmm. They also took a, they, they said that they created what they call a genetic impression of the sheep using the DNA to create an image of what the animal would have looked like while it was alive. Right. And I guess the the old the old DNA lacked a um, gene variant for a woolly coat. Uh, I, guess I thought all sheeps had woolly coats, but I guess it lacked it for a woolly coat. And, and it said it did have, have hair fiber on its body consistent with several modern breeds though.
1: Yeah. I think what they were getting at with that is that this particular sheep was not bred for its coat and therefore its wool potential, right? So they weren't using these sheep like that. These were probably food sheep or I mean there's a
0: lot of feta down there. So
1: <laughs> Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah, food, milk. The that's what the, the yeah. sheep were for. But it does seem like they probably did have sheep that were bred specifically for their wool because mm-hmm. they they were making clothing out of wool at that time too. So right. They it show it's interesting because it shows that in this area at that time they had specialized flocks for different types of things. So
0: well, definitely doesn't take a once you have domesticated animals, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that hey, when that animal has sex with that yeah. animal, you get this animal. Yeah, that that is something I think pretty much anyone would come to that conclusion. Right. And, and when they start seeing certain types of coats or certain traits that they want to propagate, they'll just start breeding those together. Yeah, we'll just put them know.
1: in one field and the others in another, or yeah. even on different hilltops, yeah. you know, just enough to keep them apart. And then right. all of a sudden you have different flocks that are specialized in different things. And I don't know a whole lot about sheep and what kind of meat or milk they produce, but mm-hmm. it, it does make me wonder if, <laughs> Right, <laughs> but it does make me wonder if they, if there was a specific flavor or type of meat that they were breeding for? I mean, you could breed for coats really easily yeah. and and get your wool sheep, you know, to one side. But then with the rest of them, were they trying to get a certain quality which made better milk, more milk maybe, maybe mm-hmm. some variety just had better lactation, so therefore more milk? I don't know, it'd be interesting yeah. maybe looking at current sheep herding groups would give you some of those answers because I don't know anything about how that works.
0: It makes me kind of wonder if modern Sheep that are bred for their coats. Uh huh. If they're also, I don't know, if they're only bred for their coats, or yeah. if at some point you can just eat them.
1: I believe they are only bred for their coats. So when because, they like age out? Uh, yeah, when they age out, I mean, they just die naturally. And yeah, I, I think suppose. they do hit a certain age where the, the coat is not necessarily good for spinning mm-hmm. anymore. And I don't know what they do with those not at that pasture. point. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they, maybe they. I don't know what they would be good for at that point, but stew? I, uh, I don't know.
0: <laughs> if I had a sheep, I would name it Stu.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, what now? <laughs> <That's> so sad. <laughs> what? That's so funny. Oh, poor stew. Come here, stew. <laughs> <laughs> Little Stewie. Anyway. All right. Well, that oh, was man. a mean joke. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. So that's pretty much it for this week. Um, we've got some good articles already on the slate for next week. So come on back for that, and uh, we're starting our travels again, so who knows where we're going to be?
1: Yeah, I definitely. I mean, we
0: actually know where we're going to be. But we still.
1: do, but we're not <laughs> We're not going to reveal it yet. It's a big surprise. Yeah. Actually,
0: if you want to follow us, <laughs> uh, check out Roadster Adventures on Instagram. Yeah. We post some stuff over there, and we'll link to like YouTube videos and stuff. That's just kind of an aside. Yeah. But uh, we talk about it a lot, so I figured I'd mention it. And Roadster is a combination of our last names, so it's R-O-D-S-T-E-R, not R-O-A-D. Right. So... Yeah, go find that. Anyway, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Adios! Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening, and have an awesome day.